0: it's something that was really, you know, frustratingly, now that I look back, easy to hide within athlete mentality, because I could tell my parents, well, I'm just trying to train really hard for hockey, or, um, you know, my teammates would look at my plate, and they, you know, would be something that was commended, like, oh, Mac, you know, only eats vegetables, or, you know, Mac doesn't want the bread, pass it down here, and those were comments that, in their eyes, you know, they're like, oh, I wish I had, you know, had the quote unquote discipline that that she had, but for me it was crippling. Like it was if I ate that bread, I couldn't go and like hang out with my friends and be in a good mood because anxiety would start to creep in.
1: Welcome back to Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellon. According to a collaborative study with the NCAA and the National Eating Disorders Association, more than one-third of female athletes reported, quote, attitudes and symptoms placing them at risk for anorexia nervosa. Furthermore, 9.2% of the female athletes identified as having, quote, clinically significant problems with bulimia nervosa. Today's guest is Mackenzie St. Ange. Her story with disordered eating entails neither anorexia nor bulimia. The cycle began at the end of high school and transitioned into her time at Dartmouth University as a two-sport athlete. At an Ivy League institution, she was met with a team of people, including a sports psychologist and a nutritionist, who were tasked with helping student-athletes like her succeed in the classroom and in their sport. Following the passing of a friend, St. Ange began seeking out ways to control her place in the world. She turned to the guise of restrictive eating patterns to cope with the perceived loss of control. Orthorexia nervosa is a trend not officially recognized by the DSM, and thus is difficult to diagnose. Normally, the restrictive relationship with food is seen as a byproduct of OCD or anorexia, and due to the lack of research and classification, it's difficult to give an estimate of how many people are currently struggling with it.
0: I think I can point back to, you know, as early as junior year of high school, where I was really struggling with it, um, where I had, you know, a goal in mind- for the scale where I had um, you know, rules and regulations in my head around what I was gonna eat and when I was gonna eat it. Um and then I think it turned another corner closer to end of freshman year of college when I, you know, lost a friend, was struggling to adjust to, you know, college in general, um and the pressures of playing on a D one team and not always getting to be, um, the star of the show or, or, you know, getting to start. I was a fourth line player for my first couple of years and, and I was okay with that. You know, I always had a gritty mentality, but at the same time, there can be those doubts that creep in your mind of, am I good enough? Will I ever turn that corner of being a starter? Um, where do I add value to this team? And so struggling with that self-worth and with some of that lack of control that was, you know, thrown in my face that. I can't save people I love from bad things happening in life. And, um, you know, I can't keep everything wrapped up in a nice bow um, in other areas that I turned to food and I turned to my body where those were things I could control. I could control how many reps I did. I could control, you know, what kind of food I ate. And um, the more rules and control I looked for in that area of my life, you know, the, the deeper into that cycle I fell.
1: In conversations with the Dartmouth nutritionist, St. Ange continued to have intrusive thoughts about the way she was fueling her body, but she rationalized them as steps in the grind of elite functioning.
0: So I struggled primarily with like orthorexic and, you know, tendencies and orthorexia, which is this pursuit of healthy to the point that it's not healthy. Um, And like I said, having food rules, like certain foods fall into the healthy category, certain foods don't. And so I, you know, would go to her and say the exact same thing. I want to be, you know, I thought leaner was faster, was better, was, you know, more efficient as an athlete. And so that was my goal. And that's always how I felt like I could articulate it. And it was better than saying I wanted to lose weight because, you know, I wasn't one of those people that just wanted to be small and tiny and skinny. I wanted to be strong. And I thought that, you know, that was, that was okay. Why wouldn't it be okay as an athlete? Um, and I would go in and really just ask, like, what should I eat? Like, what what can I do? Will you just tell me? Will you take the decision portion out of this? You know, I will eat anything that you put down on a meal plan. Just do it for me. Because I was so scared to make choices around food um, because I had given it so much power. And I knew, you know, if I made what I thought was the wrong decision, what it could do to my brain for the rest of the day, the anxiety it could cause. So I I would go and I'd ask her those questions. And it's tough too, because, you know, I remember talking to her when, you know, I stopped getting my period for a while in those years, as happens when you underfuel your body, your body literally says, I don't have enough resources to, you know, maintain a healthy cycle and to go through the potential of giving life to another human because that human won't do well because it's not going to get enough resources. Um, which is scary now that I look back on it, but when you're young and you're ignorant and you don't understand how that impacts your hormones and everything else that goes into being, you know, a mentally stable, healthy, physical athlete. Like I was throwing it all out of whack and I thought it was just like, Oh, it's kind of convenient. Like, I don't have to worry about that. (laughs) It's, it's terrible, but I did. Um, And so, you know, for all of those things, the way I was kind of just like, please just tell me what to eat. You know, please uh, just, you know, tell me how to be leaner and how to get to this goal um, where I had no business needing to be any leaner. Like I look back at photos from that time. There was nothing about my body that needed to change. St. Orange was recruited
1: to play hockey at Dartmouth and then decided to walk into the office of the rugby head coach and ask for a chance
0: to walk onto that team as well. For me, at the end of the day, was seeing um, the profiles and seeing the promotions for the Rio Olympics, the first Olympics that women's rugby, or rugby in general, was in. And I saw those women who were just strong and athletic and physical and fit, and, and I saw this sport that was this incredible combination of Soccer, which was really my first love um, as an athlete, and then hockey, the sport that I had gone on to to play competitively for you know 12, 15 years of my life, and I it just clicked something about it was like I, that's something that I would love and you know have a hunch I might be good at it, given you know enough time put in and, and hours of practice. So I walked into their office and I said, "Hey, look, I'm pretty committed to seeing out my full four years on the hockey team, and you know I." I'm going to be a captain and I really want to be there for my team. But at the same time, I'd love to have the opportunity to try out this sport and I, I will give you a hundred percent when I am there. So what do you think? And they welcomed me with open arms and um, we're pretty excited to just have somebody that, you know, brought well, I, uh, the enthusiasm that I brought. Really. I was just like happy to be there every single day. Um, so it, it was an incredible experience getting to then, You know, have both those sports in my life for you know it was a year and a half that they overlapped, and then I went on to play rugby for another um, year and a half post school. Actually, what I would say rugby did for me was put me in an environment where that's a sport that so many different body types are celebrated, and that you have to have different body types. You know, you have to have props that can move people out of the way, no matter, you know, what they look like or how strong they are. You have to have backs that are fast and agile. And so it wasn't, I, I, for the first time kind of felt like, okay, I don't need to adjust or change my body to be a good, you know, hockey player, to be a good rugby player in general. It's more like I will be placed somewhere, um, on the rugby field based on the value that the way my body already is can, can add to the team so that was really cool um and there was just yeah so much diversity and so many different perspectives on body image and you know identity because the rugby team also had other walk-ons so whereas my hockey team was full of people who had played that sport their entire life just like me and rugby was people coming from all these different places um, and who you know, were kind of given the gift of finding it later and therefore knowing who they were before they added rugby. St. Ange began to attribute her
1: success on the ice and on the field with her caloric intake. Her restrictions became more severe as she learned more about nutritional guidelines.
0: I would nerd out on, like, nutrition and exercise, but not in a healthy way, in a way that I wanted to learn everything about it so that I could manipulate it, so that I could use it for myself, that I could, you know, put it into my... Um, distinct goals. During team body composition
1: testing, a trainer told St. Ange that although she was leaner, her body fat and muscle mass
0: had actually both decreased. I'm working harder. I'm, you know, punishing myself suffering and suffering and that something good has to come out of that. You know, that's what every good athlete does. They they push themselves beyond um, other people. But it was, you know, the first time where I had to draw the dots and say, okay, what I was doing to push myself that way actually Is holding me back um and yet given those conversations with that strength coach with that nutritionist all of those things put together coaches and teammates making comments and team meals like nobody ever had a conversation with me about it nobody ever followed up nobody ever asked a question and i still you know have some trouble with that
1: although while in her element she was still functioning at a high level saint Ange began to feel like this mountain she was facing was going completely unnoticed by her friends and her teammates. The ideas of disordered eating began to make themselves apparent in other areas of her life. As a psychology major, the eating disorder portion of her curriculum was triggering, but it also opened her eyes.
0: Getting to the like eating disorder section of our psych textbook, I was like intrigued, but also like a little nervous to learn all the details of it. Um, and I... I mean, I remember like my freshman year texting my mom and just like saying, like, I think I'm broken. Like, I don't know what it is, but there's something I feel broken because I swing from like one side of the pendulum to the other of like a great day to all of a sudden, like, you know, something triggers me and it's crippling. And that doesn't feel like it could be right. Doesn't feel like it could be the way to like live the fulfilling life that I really desperately want to pursue. Um but I didn't have the words for it and I was grasping at them in that text and so being able like I said to find these words like orthorexia like body dysmorphia like um, you know that there's all these spectrums of eating disorders and and how we view things and that you know you don't have to hit a full DSM-5 criteria or you don't have to have somebody like stepping in and putting you into an inpatient treatment center and you don't have to like have lost or gained X amount of pounds for your mental struggle to be valid. Like if it is impacting your quality of life as it a hundred percent was mine, like then it's worth getting help for and you deserve that help. And so just learning that and being able to, again, put those terms to what I was struggling with was huge because I love the quote, like you're never going to win a fight that you don't know you're in. And so that just gave me that initial awareness to be like, okay, I got to roll up my sleeves if I want this to be different and I need to step forward and, and step up and start to figure out what narratives in my head I need to challenge. It wasn't until a teammate approached St. Orange wanting a friend to confide in, following her own loss of a loved one, that a pact was made. It was blatantly obvious. Like, I was upset about something, whatever, whether it was food or my body or, or whatever it was. And if a teammate saw that like it was not often that they came to say what's up what's going on like can I help do you just want to talk about it uh and and I think you know that was I graduated in 2017 so it's been four years and there's been tremendous amount of dialogue around mental health and sports and for athletes so I I just have to hope that it's changed since then um but I think just those little moments where I felt seen and then not supported left a bit of a track record for me to say like okay I I do feel like I'm on my own Um, and it was little moments on like the side of side conversations or you know this one time walking with a friend to the dining hall where we both you know, she, she expressed feeling the same way. She was like, I I'm going through this and I'm lost and and I'm floating and I don't know what to do. And we made a deal then to go see a therapist. Um, and it was like, all right, call by Friday and I'll text you and check in and make sure you did that and, and vice versa. And that's what got, you know, was my first leg up out of kind of the, the hole that I was in where a therapist could be that person. Um, that would check in that would follow up because you'd have that standing appointment and it was their job. So I think there's a lot of value to that system in general. Um, and, and I was really grateful for that. Just that one moment. Right. And I, again, wonder like if somebody had taken the time to ask that question or have that conversation earlier, you know, could I have gotten out of it earlier? I don't know. Once St.
1: Angie began her recovery with a therapist, she realized how small changes could completely alter her
0: quality of life. Uh, when I started going, I, I started just with somebody in um, as part of the college and within the athletic department. And then I you know found it was something that was really helpful in my life in general, uh, not just for supporting recovery, but for personal growth as well. So when I moved out to Utah, I, I found somebody on psychology.com and was able to meet with her once a week for like the first year that I was out here, just settling in and navigating a new environment, new relationships, you know, new things about myself. So I found that really helpful. Therapy sessions aided in unlinking
1: her relationship with food and its effects on her athletic prowess. She finally felt seen and
0: heard. And I remember when I stopped counting calories, like I would track everything I ate every day for years and years and years. Um, And I was like, okay, it's like, I need to stop. Um, And it was partly because there was this realization like, whoa, like normal people, healthy people, people who have a neutral relationship with food don't do this. And I've done this for the past six years of my life. Like it's, it's all I've known. And now like to not track something seems strange, but at the same time seems like a first step towards freedom. So um, yeah, just the awareness is huge in that initial team conversation. And then, in terms of an approaching an individual, like it is absolutely sensitive. And depending on where that person is, like there's the opportunity for them to potentially be defensive, to be in denial, to not want to approach it, to not be in a place to ask for help. Um, but I think if I just knew that somebody else saw it, if I just knew that somebody else, Wanted better for me. If I knew that somebody else saw value in me being healthy beyond just what it would mean for how I could compete on the ice or on the field, that would have meant the world to me. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it existed in the first place and why I didn't, you know, pursue asking for help, per, like once I realized what I was in for with my coaches was like partially because. It felt like it was a weakness or it felt like it was admitting something that was taking away from my ability to perform on the ice, which in a way it was, but I needed help tackling that so that I could show up for my team and I could show up for myself and for my coaches.
1: Removing the tendency to monitor her intake required that St. Ange ditch her Apple Watch, which she used for everything from tracking workouts to making sure she ended each day
0: calorically deficient. It gave me some distance between that impulse to track or to just see like, all right, how many calories did I burn today? You know, let me just like plug and play quickly, add up how many calories I probably ate, you know, like, cause I could still play that game in my head because it was all stored there. I didn't need, you know, an app to tell me that anymore. Um, so in order to really step away from that and to start to heal, I kind of took the watch aspect out of it as well.
1: Although one teammate already understood the battle she had been fighting, St. Orange found the perfect outlet to
0: finally conceptualize her struggles to her team. There's an event that goes on on campus um, every year for women, not just athletes, women across campus to stand up on stage and and speak about what they've gone through as, you know, uh, female identifying people on campus. And uh, I shared kind of a slam poem style piece about you know, pursuit of perfectionism and how that had driven me to make, you know, success quantifiable and be within my control. And yes, it occurred, you know, as Ivy League student athletes in the classroom, but also, you know, in all these other ways and the way that I viewed my body and food and um, sharing that was so um, powerful, just the writing process and then standing on the stage and performing it in front of, you know, everyone on campus. But the most, scary piece of that was that there was you know 15 of my teammates in the audience and like that's what was freaking me out the most and their feedback at the end of the day was um you know it it was really kind but at the same time like it was like that moment like wow I really appreciated what you shared Mac and I think people forget that these things aren't just um singular events they're processes and that you kind of battle it every day and you have good days and you have bad days and um and so I was grateful to like put that out there and yeah it it was just something that a couple of other people then also came forward and said like I've had similar feelings like one girl who is no longer on the team anymore was like that's my story you just told my story and that was both like comforting and heartbreaking obviously right like you go through it you don't want anyone to ever be going through what you you know are fighting
1: then her senior year saint Ange was awarded the agnes b kurtz award given to a student athlete who exemplifies quote proficiency in athletics with dedication to the furthering of women's sports honestly
0: one of the coolest feelings of my life was getting um Getting nominated for that award and then winning it and being able to look back at a crowd full of Dartmouth athletes and have both the hockey team and the rugby team cheering for me and being really excited and um, knowing that I had their support and that in four years of being on what is a pretty small campus and then really small when you reduce it just to the athletic department that my career from sitting on the bench to, you know, being a contributing member of those teams from the way that I held myself, you know, in my character and the way I treated people in the weight room and, and said hi to people and mentored freshmen that all of that like was seen and was acknowledged and was appreciated. And that people felt that I deserved that. Um, because at the end of the day, like. That really was my goal was to be able to like be a leader. I, my freshman year, sitting down with the coaches, they're like, okay, what are your goals? I was like, I want to be a captain of this team one day. Like I want to be that kind of person that leads by example and um, whose actions speak louder than their words and who people respect for that um, no matter what, day in, day out. And I think what was really cool about that award in particular was, you know, even though I felt like I got that from, from my hockey team who would seen me those four years, like that was the entire school. Um, saying that. So it was cool. St. Ange says that choosing Dartmouth made her into the kind of person she always envisioned herself to become someday. Like I grew up in a small town in Vermont and it was a huge part of like who I am today because everybody in a small town, a small community helps each other out and, um, you know, kind of knows what's going on with everybody. And when I was looking at schools, I felt like I could go for a big school because that would be new. I could go for a small school because that would be familiar. Um, And I am just so grateful that I ended up at Dartmouth because it, you know, pushed me to grow in all the ways that I needed to, but I was able to grow into a a person and into a position where I could make an impact. And my biggest focus was that that was going to be one that was going to give back and So, yeah, like I said, I came in freshman year and was like, I want to be a captain. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it entails, like, but I I want to be that kind of person was what was most important to me. So um, it makes me really happy. Like, and I only feel like I am giving back a portion of what that school and those people have given to me and continue to give to me as an alumni. So it's just a win-win situation. She is eternally grateful for Dartmouth's belief in her and
1: the way her coaching staffs and teammates believed in her abilities.
0: Sport taught me that I am capable of so much more than I think. And whether that was through, you know, the physical side of things, like I have one more sprint left in me, one more rep, um, to the the mental side of things of being able to, you know, survive. Or I don't know if survive is the right word, but like, you know, push through years where I was just sitting on the bench and I, you know, did not know where my career was going to take me and to ultimately get to play at, you know, division one, which is one of the top levels for women's hockey. Like now there's a pro league starting up, but it's a lot of girls I used to play with and then the Olympic level, you know, so grand scheme of things, it's some of the best in the world that I got to play alongside and compete with and hold my own with. Um, So it's shown me like to never give up and to to have faith and to back myself and that i can be adaptable i can learn i can i can dig when i need to dig and i'm gonna land on my feet following college saint orange founded the sideline perspective
1: a brand focused on telling the stories of sidelined athletes through deeply personal anecdotes social media posts a website and a podcast you can follow the sideline perspective on
0: instagram at the sideline perspective you know eating disorder experience gave me the tools to have vulnerable conversations and to start to, you know, ask questions and think critically about how to support others and support myself through something that was impacting my mental health as retiring from athletics was. So with those tools, I started having those conversations and more and more people said, yeah, I resonate with that and I'm lost too. And I don't know what's next. And I don't know who I am. Um, And I wanted to share those stories because I didn't want it to be limited to just my perspective. You know, I, I can speak on that certainly, but there's, there's beauty and variety in this world. Um, and having the sideline perspective be a website to share those stories just seemed like a calling for me. Um, and and there was a moment where, yes, I wanted to pursue it because hearing other people's stories was therapeutic for myself, but I also, you know, having a psychology background, being a part of multiple sports, be, you know, wanting to make connections in other areas of the sports world, having family members that competed at the Olympic level or professionally, like I felt connected uh, enough at, even back then to be able to tell some power, powerful stories. And it felt um, as much as a passion as a responsibility to be able to start part of that conversation. And it's been really incredible how it's grown since.
1: All the ways to support Mackenzie's storytelling are in the show notes of this episode. She does a fantastic job, and the podcast is eye-opening.
0: And then I've gotten to tell the stories of Olympic athletes and gold medalists and, you know, people that have accomplished some really inspiring things. But there's one episode that stands out in my mind, um, and it's with Molly O'Connor. I can't exactly remember what I titled it, but um, I can tell you later. Maybe you can link it below. And she tells the story of being a a Olympic development soccer player and going through that process, you know, competitive high level, and then going on to play in college and just kind of losing her love for the sport and getting burnt out and um, not feeling like it was her path anymore and not knowing how to handle that emotion and, you know, feeling the grief for the loss of a love of a sport, but then also knowing like, that the time had come to, to move on to something else. And she talks about having this conversation with her mom and her mom saying, you know, it's okay. If you want to step away from the sport, it is okay. And how powerful just that one sentence was that she was like looking for permission to move on and be more than a soccer player. And then she felt like she couldn't do that without, you know, the, okay. Or yeah, like I said, the permission of people who had been invested in her career, who loved her, who, you know, maybe some part of her brain thought, you know, loving her was conditional on her being a soccer player, her performing as a soccer player, and just the freedom that can come with that knowledge that like people in our lives see us and appreciate us for so much more than just our sport. And that she did go on to step away from playing soccer and find her own path. And she's doing incredible things now, like created a sports bra company and, and all that, but it speaks to the system I think is why I like that episode so much. It speaks to um, how easily people can get wrapped up in I'm going to climb the ladder and the higher I climb, the more people will appreciate me or that sports gives us social capital or gives us value in some unique way. Um, And that sometimes, like, even if we truly love our sport or even if we don't, like, we feel like we need the permission of other people to even just express that. Opening the
1: dialogues about the psychological side of being sidelined from the sport you love is what she wants to do with the rest of her life. Sharing these stories is what fuels her, and she never wants that feeling to end.
0: Yes, you know, there's absolutely still the side of me, like I said, um, from being an athlete that just is hungry to you know, see where potential lies and that's something I've taken into my work with the sideline perspective. You know, what is the full potential of this thing and, and of my ability to lead it and to direct it and to have it give back to other people. So yeah, I I would love for that to be my um, full-time gig and, and everything that I get to focus on right now. I also work with US ski and snowboard as the manager of their athlete career and education department so that work is still um in the same realm it's it's still really meaningful work with athletes and who they are beyond their sport but at the same time right there's like it's a really cool piece of ownership about having your own thing and calling the shots on where it goes so um I don't know a timeline I don't know you know what what's next is in the immediate future but um long-term yeah sideline perspective would be the dream to be able to do full-time. St. Orange has been so thankful for the role that athletics have and continue to play in her life. Sports are so much more than sports and I could expand on that comment you know 15 different ways from the way that we worship you know athletes as fans to the way that you know the ath- athlete experiences you know their life and who they are um, but just like know that know that if you're involved in this system there's weight to it and it changes lives and it impacts people and that can be done in incredible ways or it can like forever you know hurt somebody and i i just think like if we can be aware of that like our influence is never neutral it's always pushing towards one direction or another and awareness is the first step to being more intentional about what our influence in this system looks like
1: I want to thank Mackenzie for coming on Closer Mentality and talking about her experiences. In the show notes, I've included resources for anyone working through a similar experience with disordered eating. Otherwise, that wraps up the 12th episode of Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellett. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can follow at CloserMental on Instagram and Twitter to stay up to date on upcoming guests and wave interviews. If you have an idea for an episode or would like to tell your story, send us a direct message. Tune in next Wednesday when I bring on Mallory Suliotis to talk about the National Women's Hockey League and how to forge the way for women in professional hockey. See you next week.